This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. December 8th is traditionally celebrated as Buddha's Enlightenment Day. And in many centers, it's the culmination of a week-long intensive Rohatsu retreat. I would like to take the occasion to try to think about how the story of his enlightenment comes down to us and how we consciously or unconsciously shape our picture of practice through that old story. When people perform a rohatsu sashin, they're in a certain sense reenacting the intensity of Shakyamuni's practice, culminating as an enlightenment experience. And if we don't do that, we should ask why not. We should think about how we see the relationship of practice to realization and, and what the metaphors are from that old story that um, influence us. Now, in one traditional version of uh, Buddha's life story, it says that he grew up as a prince, wealthy, sheltered, pampered, given all the material things one could ask for. Other Versions of the story, though, include the idea that his mother died in childbirth and that he was raised, I believe, by the mother's sister. And so if in that version, impermanence and loss are there from the very beginning, but somehow his father manages to arrange for all that to not matter. He may have lost his mother, but she's immediately replaced by someone indistinguishable. And he's raised in an atmosphere in which nothing is lacking. And we can begin 
to say that this represents what most of us spend our life trying to achieve, a kind of safe, settled, prosperous life. One in which we're shielded from loss and poverty, uncertainty, And we're able to achieve that to one degree or another. Most of us sitting here are living in relative prosperity and relative security, although none of us are immune to loss or illness. And in the story, young Shakyamuni seems pretty happy in his sheltered life. He grows up, gets married, has a son, and there's no indication that as long as everything is flowing smoothly, that he's protected the way his father intended, that he sees anything lacking in that life. That itself raises sort of an interesting question, whether there's some way in which we would find that secure material existence. Would we find it full or would we find it hollow? And what would be, what's the difference, really? In any case, though, Dad's plan does not uh, last forever. And one day, Prince Shakyamuni is walking the outskirts of the kingdom, and he's said to have encountered an old man, a sick man, and a, and a corpse. And the sight of these things traumatized him. And it's traumatic in the sense that it shook his world to its foundations. Uh, all of us may have to encounter old age, sickness, and death is part of our growing up and living an ordinary life. And in some sense, we understand that these things are inseparable from life as it is. Shakyamuni grew up in the most extreme form of sheltered existence, such that this incident sort of shattered his sense, not just of security, but the way the world is. And he, he immediately could not continue his previous life. He could not settle back into the simple, secure pleasure 
of wife and son and family that he had before. Sort of like uh, someone serves you a big bowl of soup and all of a sudden you see a couple rat turds floating on it. Very few of us are able to just uh, flick the rat turds away and go back to happily eating the soup. There's a way in which suddenly the presence of such a thing ruins the whole experience. We can't, can't eat it the way we ate it before. We saw the rat turds floating in there. And this is a, really sort of the essence of trauma that it's not simply a painful experience, but one which shatters the foundation of everyday life, that makes it impossible to go back to reestablish things just as they were before. And we're told that Shakyamuni said to himself, Sickness, old age, and death are unacceptable. There must be a way to free myself from them. And so he set out on a quest to somehow discover an antidote to these things. Talk about a curative fantasy, right? If we heard somebody say, old age, sickness, and death are unacceptable, I must overcome them, you know, we would be inclined to say, well, good luck with that. And yet there's a certain way in which his determination sort of represents in the most extreme form the kind of curative fantasy we all have in one way or another. We all have some conscious or unconscious project of what is it that it's going to restore our basic sense of okayness or safety. And in a way, all of these kinds of projects are attempts to keep life at bay, to find a way to shield ourselves from the inevitable. We set out to control the uncontrollable. In Shakyamuni's case, it seems like he joined various bands of ascetic uh, yogis, uh, part of the culture of his day, that trained themselves in extreme ascetic practices. And we're told that he had at least two teachers, one of whom taught absolute control over the mind, the total suppression of all thought and feeling. 
and that after many years he was able to master that, but in some sense still found it unsatisfactory, gave it up, moved on. And then he had another teacher practice complete control over the body to learn to live with the absolute minimum necessities of food and water and comfort, relationship, kind of attempt to eradicate all, all body need and vulnerability. And that he pushed to some kind of limit of mastery, nearly killing himself in the process before giving that up. And it's said that near death, he finally accepted alms of, I think, a drink of milk from a young woman passing by and allowed himself to be revived. But then he sort of sat down under a tree and said, I'm going to sit here and not get up until I finally break through and realize whatever it is that set me on this path. And so I think it's important for us to, to recognize that even though the details of the story are fantastic, again, they represent something that's deeply ingrained in our traditions of practice. And that is that you have to push yourself as hard as humanly possible even to the point of near death, if you're going to attain true enlightenment. There's this sense of a superhuman effort being required to discover what really ought to be the most basic and obvious truth in life the inescapability of old age, sickness, and death. But after a week of sitting, the week that we recreate in Rohatsu, at some point he simply looked up and saw the morning star and had an experience. And that's described in a whole variety of ways. And those two can shape our whole understanding of, well, what is it you think he achieved? What did he experience or realize? A nice simple version that I'd like said he looked up at the star and smiled and said, oh, that's me. And the way I like to interpret that, uh, maybe simply because in, in light of my own sense of uh, ex what these experiences are, he saw that star 
simply twinkling away, being itself. It did not have to kill itself to become a star. It didn't have to put itself through all these trials and aesthetic, you know, exercises in order to be itself. It was already what it was perfectly. And yet what it was was constantly twinkling and changing. And the other part of the account of the realization is Buddha says something like, in this moment, I and all creation together attain Buddhahood. There's a sense of non-separation of himself and all creation, but also this sense that the non-separation is with everything is like this star. Everything is just perfectly being itself. Everything already manifests Buddha nature, a word that becomes all sorts of mysterious, but at bottom just means everything shares in interconnection and in impermanence. I'm like that, the star's like that, you're like that, everything's like that. Even old age, sickness, and death are like that. They too are just twinkling stars, manifestations of life as it is, moment after moment after moment. Well, you know, then what? One could imagine a version of the story in which she says, well, I'm glad I got that out of my system. You know, now I can go home. And he can go back to his wife and kids and resume a life, you know, that uh, doesn't try to shield itself from old age, sickness, and death, but accepts these things as part of life. That the, it's not a problem that these things exist. That's what life is. Maybe if he did that, uh, the tradition of lay practice would have uh, started up much sooner in a much more vigorous kind of way. But instead, he reconnected with some of uh, his old ascetic buddies and uh, began to try to teach them a little bit of uh, what he understood. But together, they also tried to devise a form of life that would embody that realization. Uh, but unfortunately, the part they decided to embody was not the basic okayness of everything just as it is. What they figured they would embody is the sense of impermanence and non-attachment to 
impermanent things. And so there came about a kind of ascetic monastic order that says if everything is impermanent, let's not try to own anything or hold on to anything. That if we allow ourselves any kind of attachment, we're just going to be in denial of reality. And so the form of life that embodies this realization is to have no fixed home, to have no family, to have no possessions, to live by begging for alms day to day and not saving any leftovers, but to have to beg anew each day. And, and of course, the, this becomes a kind of, you know, traditional rationale for a complicated form of life that has uh, many historical and cultural uh, components to it. You know, it's a, it's a pretty complicated story, I would think, of why there are monks and priests in the world and why that's an ongoing form of life for people. Paradoxically, I think that uh, um, monasticism became a more settled, more secure form of life uh, that a person could seek out in a world that was dangerous and insecure and unpredictable uh, for the last couple of thousand years while the world, you know, while ordinary daily life was subject to all sorts of wars and cataclysms and plagues and everything else, the monastic life looked like it was the most settled, rule-governed, stable way to live a life apart from the chaos of the outer world. And one might uh, say it ironically comes as close as we can to recreating the, uh, the sheltered life that Shakyamuni's father thought he was creating for him uh, at the very beginning of the story. The biggest dilemma though, I think, in the traditional story of Shakyamuni though, is, is this equation of realization with uh, superhuman effort uh, and pushing yourself near to death. I think that has a very pernicious uh, effect on the way we think about uh, practice. Uh, it turns uh, a spiritual practice into the equivalent of a you know training for a marathon or a, you know uh, this kind of effort that's beyond the capacity of ordinary people uh, and that realization is going to be the possession of a certain kind of uh, elite 
the byproduct of elite training. And there it loses any sense of the immediacy and simplicity of the reality of this is it. That's me. That star that is perfect already. And I think it ignores the fact that so many people are able to somehow shift into that perspective through what we might simply call grace or luck. The realization isn't always the product of some great effort. We may sometimes literally just wake up to it, see things in a different way. Sort of why I like the image of the, the duck rabbit drawing to describe what happens in realization. All of a sudden, we just sort of see things from a different perspective. It's a perspective, a shift of perspective from something is lacking, something is hidden, something's a problem, to this other perspective of basic okayness. Things are just what they are. It's not a problem to have problems. Nothing is hidden. And what does it take to shift your perspective from the duck to rabbit? Well, sometimes it can come about because you just keep staring at the damn thing over and over and over again. But sometimes somebody will just walk by and just say, oh, it's a duck. It's a rabbit. Could be either one. Effort may have nothing to do with it. Our practice then isn't organized around pushing ourselves to some limit in order to have a big experience. Although I think that unconsciously we sort of do that anyway. That we we sort of put ourselves through an intensive kind of uh, practice that is probably proportional to the extent to which we hate our life as it is. And we attempt to turn that self-hate into aspirational effort. Sometimes these things are just self-reinforcing. That's a shame. But sometimes when the old kind of method works, it pushes those efforts to a breaking point to where you just sort of give up. You try as hard as you can for years and years and you're lucky you just fail utterly. Right? And then you have to, you know, wake up to some something else. But at the simplest level, you know, our practice as Joko taught us was just to be aware moment after moment where we say, this isn't it, I'm not okay. Just in all the little micro anxieties and discontents of everyday life. 
And then if possible, just for a moment, turn that around and say, even those moments, oh, well, that's, that's just me. That's just life. That's just this moment. Nothing has to be changed. Nothing has to be fixed. It's possible to leave everything just as it is and just let it twinkle. 